0: This episode of Where Did It All Go Right is sponsored by Pearson. Pearson is the world's learning company, supporting talent and helping everyone to make progress in their lives through learning. Working with teachers and education experts, Pearson provides a wide range of qualification routes so you can pick the course which suits you best to develop your skills and stand out in the crowd visit them online at go.pearson.com forward slash where did it all go right Hello, welcome back to Where Did It All Go Right? Or if you're new, you're very welcome to this podcast where we talk to creatives about the pivotal moments in their careers. I'm Ali Jones, and we hope to inspire and entertain you. And during this pandemic, I think that's really important. Uh, so this week's guest is comedian, writer, actor, podcaster, Lucy Porter. Lucy's tour, Be Prepared, is now rescheduled for 2021. And as well as touring, she's regularly heard on the radio. Uh, She's writing a book, and she has her podcast fingers on buzzers. Well, we recorded this episode in our homes, thanks to clever tech, and discovered how Lucy got to do the job she loves. I love the fact that you said that you're sorry you're running late. You can be late in your own. Home. Oh my god, it's a ridiculous. I mean, honestly, and I, I love the fact um, that you sort of said, "Is there anything I can do to prepare for this?" Which is sort of your whole. Mantra, isn't it? The be prepared tour because you are the first well, person who's ever asked me on this podcast, do I need to prepare anything? So yeah. I, I, there's obviously a strong work ethic there. No one else has ever bothers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, not that I would have prepared, Ali. I mean, I, I ask, <laughs> but it really is academic because I'm clearly I've turned up late and I, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm woefully ill prepared. But I try. That is my thing. Is especially because I think in adult life. Uh, it's taken me a long time to realise this, but I am someone who's always lived quite a chaotic life, and I, you know things have always been last minute and slapdash. And I've realised how stressful I've made a lot of my life by not just preparing. And so I'm trying now desperately to be a bit more organised because I've realised how much easier and smoother it makes life. Yeah, yeah, particularly with kids as well, because
0: if things I are think, not organised, yes. Everything goes that was the well. big
1: trigger for so much to change in my life. And I sort of... I mean, in many ways, I kind of wish that I'd had children sooner, um, not least because I would be less tired, but um, <laughs> also because I think, yeah, it, it was for me. And I think, you know, it's different triggers for different people, isn't it? A lot of... You know, there are a lot of life-changing events um, that kind of that make a big difference to the way you sort of think about yourself. But definitely for me, yeah, having to adhere to a routine has been really useful and that's something that I haven't had since I was in my 20s and working in an office and I think I chose a way of life that didn't involve sort of routine and predictability because that was what I wanted and I think I actually needed a little bit more routine and predictability than (laughs) I had thought (laughs) and now I absolutely love having a regular bedtime yeah and get a regular getting up time and it it's you know, again, I think when you're young, it doesn't matter so much, but um, but now, yeah, I definitely I
0: like to get my eight hours sleep. Oh, you're can. very good, you're very good, and a term time as well and holidays, which we didn't have throughout the whole summer, which was chaotic. Uh, well, in in our household, yes. it was, and it's quite nice. How old are yours? Um, let me think. I can't even remember. Eleven, and <laughs> I have two nine year olds. So, oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> I've got
1: one nine-year-old and that's enough.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that's it's double the pleasure. It's, which is why, wow. it's, why it's lovely to speak to you. <laughs> Honestly, it's nice to have oh some adult conversation. And, and I'm, I, um, I was really sorry to hear that your tour, obviously, like a lot of things this year, has, has been postponed. And I, I wondered whether you've been tweaking it because it's sitting there, not you're not oh. performing it. Unbelievable. I mean, so I did actually do... One
1: show. So I had this, a uh, show I did in Edinburgh last year. So when you think, cast your mind back to the August of 2019. Oh, it's a long time and, ago. You know, I mean, the concerns that we had were so different. It was, you know, Jeremy Corbyn and Brexit. Oh, and, God. Yeah. You know, all of that stuff was, was kind of uppermost in our minds. And um, it. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, it's always been difficult. Like, I mean, I'm not a particularly topical comedian. And what I do is, if it's topical, it's normally more sort of broadly topical. So it's about, you know, social attitudes or the sort of prevailing trends in politics or whatever. It's never sort of look at Jeremy Corbyn, look at Boris Johnson, you know, and, and this is what's happened this week. But even with that kind of very broad sweep, things have changed so massively. That And and it it isn't even just like talking about politics or about society, even I think our attitudes towards lots of things like work and family and personal space and (laughs) cleanliness and hygiene. I mean, every sphere of life has changed so radically. Over, I mean, particularly in 2020, but I think even over the couple of years before that, kind of since 2016 and the referendum and with Trump, it's those sort of political things have made a big difference to our sort of everyday lives. So it's been, yeah, it's been a weird time to be writing comedy anyway. And then, when the tour got completely cancelled this year and then we rescheduled it for the autumn and then that's now been rescheduled to next year. And I, I mean, I swear to God, if, if we have to reschedule those dates one more time, I'm just going to go round to everybody's house who bought a ticket individually and just do the bloody show because <laughs> I can't, you know, I can't be performing this show when I'm 90. No. Like, you know, <laughs> oh, it got postponed again. into So, uh, yeah, something has to give. But I did do a show in Devon. A couple of weeks ago, because there was a show I'd been booked for a literary festival, and they very enterprisingly decided to make it a drive through festival. Oh, brilliant! So it was amazing. So I went and did, but so I did the show in front of a load of cars, and people flashed their lights if they were enjoying it, which was lovely. (laughs) But um, it did involve such a massive rewrite. uh,
0: Oh, no. So that's really its kind of frustrating because you've got this thing all packaged up. You're ready to go with it. And I mean, I know that you obviously as a comedian, you you change things, don't you, as you go on a tour. But this is this is like a long time for it to be waiting to be performed, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) Yes. I mean, the fundamentals actually, though, are pretty much
1: unchanged because, you know, ironically enough, it was uh, it was about how... So it's based on sort of talking about my time in the brownies and my kids going to beavers and about whether those kind of institutions are still important or whether there are sort of values from those things that that we can cling to. And so sort of talking about changing values uh, turned out to be way more, relevant than I thought it would be um, and in some ways that's meant the show has had to change a lot but then in other ways I think it's true that you know clinging to your certain core principles has never been more important as well because you do like sometimes I think have I gone completely mad because there are things that seem to be I mean I, I think we all do because you do look at Trump for example and you think well the idea of truth and sanity and you know, and being an honourable person and being decent and transparent. And I mean, yeah, the the idea that people can still defend his behaviour or can excuse it because it's expedient, because they've got another agenda that he's helping to facilitate. I mean, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of people... Who are kind of making moral compromise, and I think we all have to do it sometimes. You know, there are it, being living entirely true to your principles is obviously incredibly difficult, and I'm not sure that you know I, I'm, compromise and real politique and stuff is always you know is is sometimes a good thing. But there are some people who you think, how will you be able to live with yourself in years to come? I bet he wants to look out. Or a beaver. I bet he... Well, he probably got excused from scouting, didn't he, on the basis of... (laughs) Some flimsy excuse, but yeah, well, you yeah. survived a night in the woods with us. <laughs> well, yeah, I
0: mean, my my son went on a, a, a night walk with Sea Scouts last night, and I do think it's it's really good for them actually. And going on camps and and it's all coming back. So uh, no, I I think you're you're absolutely right. But I guess this year, I mean, I've got the horrible feeling that they're going to have to learn survival techniques
1: <laughs> for a sort of more general <laughs> well being in life. If they can survive in the wilderness, then that might prepare them for our. Apocalyptic future. Oh
0: god. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but 2020, I mean for you, obviously the tour is a little bit postponed, but you Queen of Podcasts, lots of writing and, and radio as well. So it's not all gone kiboshed for you. Because I guess a lot of comedians um, who just do comedy, that's it.
1: Yeah, I mean it's been absolutely devastating for our industry and it what's really frustrating about it is that obviously it's not an emergency service and I think some people have been quite dismissive about oh well you know comedians people in the arts should just retrain and do something else and it's like well yeah, obviously they will because, you know, everyone has to eat and live and it's not like people are sitting around going, well, I simply won't go to do anything else. It's just that people are, you know, we're not trained to do anything else and there aren't really going to be enough sort of other jobs around and, you know, what do you do? And I mean, I am very lucky in that I do do other stuff and, you know, I can continue to sort of at least feel creative even if I'm not being particularly paid for it you know I'm kind of uh I'm eking out a living and it's you know it, it's a, an honor to be able to do so but,
0: but also um, everybody needs comedy at the particularly at this time and oh, and music and arts and the, you know the news of the cinemas this week and it, it, it okay yes at the moment it's a bit dodged but we really need it to carry on because it's it's such a big part of everyone's lives isn't it
1: well, and also financially, I mean, uh, theatre is a huge export. Theatre and film, and all the all the kind of supporting roles within theatre and film, are really important as well. That it drives a lot of. Um, a lot of businesses and so you know I think economically we're going to be in dire straits if we haven't kept at least some of that in place because when things do return then we're going to need that part of our economy to still be sort of thriving and functioning and I suppose I mean the problem is like that people who do the creative pursuits will always want to come back to it so I guess that from a government point of view it's like well just you know that those people are not going to retrain and then never come back if they can come back. So I can sort of see cynically why it's easier to ignore that than to, you know, if you lost a load of people in other sectors, then you might never get them back. But, yeah, it's, you know, it it is really key, I think, to keep laughing. And when you look at what's happened in lockdown... Like for me and most of my friends, I don't know about you, but I mean, I have never consumed more television and. <laughs> Normal people.
0: Um, uh, Killing Eve. I mean, my husband has sat and watched things with me that he would never normally watch. And he's like, oh, actually, I'm watching Us at the moment. There was a quiz in that actually, which I wanted to talk to you about later. Have oh, you been watching Us? Watch no, I haven't, actually. I, in fact, no, I've not
1: even read the book. I really like David Nicholls, but uh, I, that one passed me by. There's sometimes. a
0: school quiz in there, and, and as a host, of, and I know as you're such a big fan of quizzes, and as a school quiz host myself, it's so true. Like, there's a, there's a celebrity tattoos round, and, and things like that, <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's so... And then there's a fight about, Oh, well, I won't give it too much away, because you might want to see it, but, um, you know, who's won? Because they get so competitive, those things. I,
1: I love the um, well. David Nichols is a big quiz fan, I think, because he did the Start of a Ten. With one of dude. his wasn't it the University Challenge? So yeah, it's been. I mean, I because I've been watching stuff that I would never normally watch because the kids have been making me watch YouTube stuff.
0: Yes, like YouTube and TikTok. Oh God, yeah, James Charles and DIY people, and yeah, we've been doing all that yeah. as well. Yeah, but you're yeah, right. My... It's so important, particularly at a time like this.
1: Yeah and I mean I think there are sort of other ways of presenting entertainment like you know people are doing Twitch and live streaming things and doing like Instagram TV and but to me I mean it doesn't replace live entertainment and I think it's the couple of things that I have done live since lockdown began um, have felt so special and amazing and everyone so the I did this drive-in gig and it was like even though everyone was sort of in and around their cars so like people were sort of getting out of their cars because it was a nice night and um, everyone was like God it's just so nice to be around people oh, yeah. safely and I mean nobody was getting within you know two metres of each other and obviously we were outside and but yeah the sort of everybody just having a live entertainment experience did feel really really nice and I think You know, I am someone who, since the age of about 14, has always gone to music gigs and comedy gigs and theatre, and it's a huge part of my life, and I can't... And the cinema, actually, you know, because of all of them, you thought, well, the cinema would never disappear. The cinema will always be there, but, you know, it's it's like the, um, you know, when in the 40s and 50s when TV was took off and then the cinema kind of really suffered from that. I suppose we're going through a similar... Similar
0: thing. But somebody said to me, after the uh, Spanish flu, we had the roaring 20s. So... Yes. You know, we are going to absolutely get back on it (laughs) soon, I'm sure. (laughs) And and you said that when you were 14, you loved going to comedy gigs and music and everything, because your parents worked in a pharmacy. Is that right? Yes. so my mum and dad were...
1: Both pharmacists. Yes.
0: So were you behind the Disprin doing your own comedy routines? Was it something that you really (laughs) wanted to do from a young age? Yeah, my
1: dad loved comedy... And well, and my mum did too, to a lesser extent. But my dad used to go to live events, so he'd seen Tommy Cooper live, and he'd seen like you know loads of great old comedians. And he really loved Dave Allen, so we used to watch all of Dave Allen's stuff, and you know sitcoms, and yeah. So it was huge in our family. And I used to—I mean, I was so the one of the memories of my childhood was doing. Dave Allen impersonations for my parents and their friends, where I would sit there with a glass of whiskey in one hand and a cigarette in the other, a lit cigarette, because this was in the 70s and 80s where you could do that sort of thing. Um, And so, yeah, so I think I always loved comedy and the sort of slight naughtiness of it. I think that's what really appealed to me was that it was always a little bit subversive and transgressive. And my dad was terrible for... I I think it was a very traditional arrangement in our house where my dad tried to get away with sort of showing us kind of things that we shouldn't have been exposed (laughs) to and my mum would say, Morris, that's not appropriate for the children. And uh, so... Yeah, so I kind of had that sense from an early age that comedy was
0: something that was a bit wrong, but a bit fun. So are you doing that now with your children? Are you like... Because sometimes my kids, are there, we sit and watch Gogglebox and it gets to about 9.20 and the, the content starts getting a bit dodgy <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, get a cushion, a high five. I, I wonder yes. if you're, are you giving them inappropriate comedy moments now?
1: Well, no, you see, I have snapped into... I, I think it's so tempting, isn't it, to just replicate your own childhood... And so I feel I'm quite prudish now with the children. And I'm always the one saying, I don't think that's appropriate, actually. I think you should probably... Um, Yeah, so I think I'm actually a lot harsher because I... I don't know, yeah. I mean, I don't ever swear in front of the kids. and My husband, like, whenever they say they've learned a bad word, it's because they've been in traffic with Daddy. (laughs) And, uh, and I have, you know, from my wanton youth. And uh, the problem is, because of the internet, my children are at some point going to discover that, you know, mummy used to stand on stage telling jokes about sex. And mm, I wondered, and... I, yeah, had they discovered that? They haven't discovered it yet. No, no. <laughs> That's going to be dread... terrible.
0: Your whole holier than thou
1: uh, image is going to be ruined. Yeah. I'm hoping somehow I can just wipe the internet by then. <laughs> 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 I'm looking on ways
0: to. Well, Trump, uh, to Trump just... will probably do that. So yes, you know, that's right? He, there could be a positive there for you. <laughs> 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 so, so you went to uni and you 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 went down the sort of journalistic route, but comedy was obviously was it sort of fighting you? And you were thinking, I'm going to do this as my backup, but I'm going to one day. Get on that stage, or was that still really Not on at the all? Burner? No, 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 no.
1: no, no. I, I never wanted to perform. I was incredibly shy, hated any kind of public speaking. I, I kind of enjoyed writing, and so yeah, I kind of wanted to be Kate 80 That was my thing. Was okay. I want to be a, an investigative journalist and go to the war-torn hotspots of the world and uh, right wrongs and repair injustices and then it, somehow i got i think actually Ellie, what we're going to discover as we talk about my life here is it's going to be a sort of a story of uh drifting <laughs> <laughs> into things completely by accident like there's no <laughs> no planning is ever no... <laughs> really gone into anything that I've done so Has yeah I the got even a few...
0: more ironic be prepared tour thing going on yes here.
1: yes 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 well this is why I've only come to it late in life of realising it's quite good to have a plan of some sort rather than just a I mean it, you know it served me well just saying yes to things and not really thinking about anything too much and jumping in with both feet so I went to yeah I went to uni in Manchester and then because I wanted to be, I thought, you know, vaguely journalism, something kind of quite serious. I went to work at Granada because Granada TV produced a show called World in Action at that time, which was an amazing, their their sort of flagship current affairs and uh, documentary strand. And I wanted to work on that. But when I got to Granada... The Sorting Hat uh, decreed that I was going to go to entertainment rather than news and journalism, and so I ended up working for Richard and Judy and the Stars in Their Eyes. Uh, and, uh, and when you
0: say the Sorting Hat, it was literally somebody put you there, so you didn't um, ask. Okay, I mean I the Sorting funny. Hat was
1: largely sexist. I mean, <laughs> it was very much a you know the HR department basically funneled you into where they thought you should go. And at that point, I mean, I used to go and visit. I had one friend actually who was in the news and current affairs department, and she was very much uh, one of the few women in a in a sea of men. And it was like you'd go in and it would just be the fog of Marlborough red smoke and the smell of whiskey. And it was men doing journalism. Just like, men. like Fleet men. Street. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'd come up to um, entertainment where it was basically, it was all the women and the gay men just kind of <laughs> hanging know. out
0: and, and when you said a glitter hat, and spangles. I this, and, sorry, I had this image of like uh, Harry Potter and you know when they have the, the hat, which which house you're going to be in. So you kind of got, <laughs> you got pushed away from the cigarettes and into the happy hopefully happy.
1: The Hufflepuff, if you will, of
0: uh, (laughs) of entertainment,
1: which was basically for anyone who, you know, anyone who didn't fit in elsewhere, you'd get sent into entertainment and you would sit and watch the videos for You've Been Framed. So that was the sort of rite of passage, which you had to sit and watch all the terrible hours and hours of footage that people, you know, people, it's extraordinary. People, you know, you're, if you've got a funny clip, why not send it in? And you might get, I think it was £250 at the time. So it's obviously enough. for that unimaginable riches and was, you know, huge, huge sums of money. But so people would just send their entire holiday <laughs> so video.
0: So you had to trawl through people on the beach, people swimming in oh, the yeah. pool.
1: Oh. Yeah, nothing amusing would happen at all. But I think they thought if we just send it in, then if they see, which is fine, I, you know, all power to them. Absolutely, but yeah, to be so. Were you trying to crawl
0: your way back into the smoky realms of, of of the newsroom, or by now were you quite comfortable? Well, I see, I'd found another
1: smoky realm to uh, go to, which was stand-up comedy. So because when I was working at Granada, I used to go to comedy clubs in Manchester, which at that time was, it was extraordinary. Um, The comedy scene, in the same way that the music scene in Manchester had been everything, like a few years before, where you'd had the Stone Roses and then you had Oasis was sort of coming through while I was there. Um, And the comedy scene was also flourishing. So there were people like Steve Coogan, John Thompson, Carolina Hearn, Henry Normal um, and then when I started going to the comedy clubs I met other sort of contemporaries who were young people who wanted to get in stand-up like Johnny Vegas and Peter Kay and Chris Addison um, so yeah it was a, a a sort of phenomenal time to be watching comedy in Manchester and I went to loads of comedy clubs and there were hardly any women there was a woman called Susan Vale who was um, doing comedy There was a woman called Carol Batten who used to do poetry, but there were sort of really no, hardly any female comedians at all. And it's so different now.
0: I mean, there's almost filled. Sometimes you put the telly on. There's more women than men. Occasionally, when you sort of put on live live at the Apollo, but then so did you find that intimidating? Um, yeah,
1: but in that sort of rebellious young person way only made me think actually maybe I do want to do this and maybe because also I really wanted to write and it was very difficult to get anyone to take your writing to or you know to do anything with your writing if you weren't also a performer because you know obviously then you've put your money where your mouth is and you're doing your stuff and you know you I, I, there were lots of sort of reasons why I thought oh, actually it'd be quite good to do stand-up and yeah and also I think I, I've always suffered from imposter syndrome quite badly and I kind of thought well there's no way I could be a stand-up comedian you know it's just not and then and then I saw some of the blokes who were doing it and I thought well surely I mean surely I can't be that bad and, um, and, and yeah. did you
0: get advice from, from other comedians as well because you'll be working with some of them as well
1: yes i mean they were i mean carolina herm was amazing because i've worked on the mrs merton show and she was she and craig cash and henry normal and dave gorman who were all sort of writing on that they were all very encouraging and because that's almost what you need isn't it you need people who who just give you that little boost um just to say yeah you can do it oh god i think it's so important isn't it just having a I mean, I think what was really nice about starting doing comedy in Manchester, even though I wasn't from there, I'd just gone to university there and got a job there, was that it was a really friendly, quite small comedy scene. Whereas already even then in the 90s in London, there were loads of clubs and loads of comedians. And, you know, and obviously London is a bigger place. And so you you wouldn't necessarily sort of hang out with other comedians. Whereas in Manchester, we you know there were only like three main venues to play and there was only a few of us so we all kind of hung out together and supported each other and so it was really yeah it was really nice and I think that's then I moved to London in 2000 and I found it really that's when I found it really hard because I didn't have that support network and I didn't really have people encouraging me because in London it was all a bit harsher and tougher and you know and there was a Uh, There was lots of really nice comedians, but there were a few kind of sexist sort of... In fact, not even so much comedians, more promoters and people in the industry who really kind of reinforced my imposter syndrome by kind of going, well, you only get gigs because you're a woman anyway. And, oh, yeah, they only put you on the bill because you're a girl. And I really internalised that for years. I thought, oh, yeah, the only reason I get all this work is just because I'm a woman. And then I look back now and I go, for God's sake, you know, you were, yes, you were a woman and you were doing a really hard thing in the face of, you know, audiences would mistrust you as soon as you got on stage. and, yeah, oh, and you It know, must have been comedians.
0: like going into a bear pit and, and terrifying and, and you must have somewhat a real strength and a real fierceness to, to get over that, even though you said you had the imposter syndrome, but to get on that stage, lots of deep breaths. Sheer bloody mindedness. Yeah, that's the that's the way through. Lots of deep
1: breaths and a couple of vodkas was yeah. the early solution. Uh, which, yeah, pretty quickly I thought I can't keep drinking at this level. Otherwise, I will be. I won't. I won't live to see my thirtieth birthday. But yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, it was tough. But then actually, there were always really nice, supportive people. And my agent was great. You know, she picked me up sort of when I moved to London because I'd had a, a lovely agent called Sandy Gort in Manchester who had been really brilliant and nurturing and encouraged me and then my agent Debbie took me on when I moved to London and so, you know, her and her team were really supportive and, and nurturing. and Yeah, and there were really lovely other comedians. I mean, some of my favourite people in the whole world are other comedians who I have known for 20-odd years from doing the comedy circuit and there's, you know... There are some really good ones out there who were great. So,
0: but was it around that time when you moved to London when you did sort of think I might give up because this is really tough and it might be a lot easier to go and watch videos for uh, I don't know another TV show? (laughs)
1: Yes, (laughs) welcome catchphrase. I I did still have a little career in telly. That you know, there was a point where it became. Uh, you've got to choose between something that's a little bit more sort of stable and reliable or follow your dream. And I, yeah, I I did sort of just make the leap. And I think because I was so bad at my job by this stage because I, <laughs> I did really want to do comedy. And so <laughs> my poor your boss... You bad on purpose. Well, poor Gary Monaghan is one of the finest human beings ever to live because he was my boss at Granada and I was so terrible at my job, and I used to because I'd be off doing gigs. So I'd have driven up to like Glasgow or something, and then driven back, and you and then know, be just at work at nine o'clock that morning in time to get into work. Yeah, and he was exceedingly patient and very kind, but As eventually you I just fell
0: asleep kind of, in front of a TV oh, screen.
1: I was useless,
0: absolute useless. <laughs> and and at this so, point, was your your dad secretly pleased because? You know, the girl that had been doing the impressions with it? No, not at all.
1: (laughs) No, my dad, I discovered in uh, subsequent years that he had told people I'd carried on with the TV career. So he told people I was a TV producer for some years. Even when I was sort of on the telly, I was doing Have I Got News For You. And people go, how is she combining that with her her busy career in TV production? I was like, yeah, no, I'm not not doing that. But yeah, he was, uh, yeah, I think my mum and dad were just a bit scared. And I think they were scared about the lifestyle as well. And they were absolutely right to be because it was, again, looking back, oh, my God, just hanging out with unsavoury people, in bars night after night and getting the night bus home and I mean I was so the the thing that was really difficult as well was the the grinding poverty of uh starting out from from having had a wage to then really being in very dire straits financially and I was living in a flat with there were four of us in the flat and we all for one reason or another were in kind of financial dire straits and we yeah, we sort of ate nothing but baked beans and drank drank Bulgarian white wine that was one pound twenty five a bottle. Oh my!
0: This this so so because I I read somewhere I think you'd written um, you'd been asked about money and um, organising yourself and now with kids you sort of got got all organised with sort of finances, but it was this mobile phone ad. That was a massive turning point because it gave you some money and it gave you backup to go to um, to go and do a show. Was that something that your agent sorted for you? And and, yes. and and was it a time when you thought, do I really want to do this? Oh god, I mean, it was like
1: an absolute um, visitation from an angel, or <laughs> you know, it was unbelievable how much of a difference that made. It was eleven thousand pounds, I think, which you know was huge. Yeah, I mean, it was a year's, you know, a year's earnings from comedy, really, at that time. And so, um, yeah, and it was the most awful advert. And it is on YouTube. And I've kind of, again, I've reconciled myself to it. As an older person, I can watch it and just think, oh, wasn't I cute? Wasn't I little? Wasn't I young? There's so much <laughs> life ahead of me. But at the, for about 10 years, I it was it's so embarrassing because it's me dancing around in a red dress going,
0: if you want a mobile phone, you've just got to call this number, Uh, looking like an absolute idiot. And when um, you were doing it, were you kind of thinking, oh, God, I hate every minute of this? Or were you thinking, this is my key to freedom and and uh, shows? A little bit of both.
1: (laughs) So, yeah, (laughs) I knew at the time that this is going to be ammunition for my mates to make fun of me for many, many years to come. And indeed it was. Mm but uh, but yeah no it was such a a life changing sum of
0: money that i couldn't really turn it down and so it's having that backing isn't it that financial backing that can then give you the confidence to say right okay now i'm going to do this thing uh, and go and do some shows and, and and i guess as a comedian starting out you it's getting these shows and getting people to see you isn't it
1: Well, yeah, and actually, the Edinburgh Festival then was really important because we, you know, there wasn't really another kind of showcase. So it was like the trade fair for comedy, and going up there was really expensive. And I remember talking to one of the big promoters, and um, and saying, "Oh, you know, would you put my show? Because you still had to pay money to put a show on, and then if you were lucky, you would make that money back." And I said to this promoter, I was like, "Oh, would you, you know, would you take my show up for me?" And even though I was going to pay him money, he was like, "No, babe, no, 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 uh, girls don't sell in Edinburgh. Now you'll never sell a ticket. Girls don't sell. No one wants to see a woman." And uh, you know, I was like, "I think they do. I think they do." And so it makes you I more did. determined in a way, doesn't it? Oh, it did. Yeah, no, it totally did. So yeah, I I knew that was what I wanted to do, and I was very lucky because again at that time it was. Um, you know, there were just fewer people out there. So uh, it was quite easy to sort of get noticed. And so I did a couple of Edinburgh festivals and then, you know, stuff started to come out of that and got a bit of TV work, which, uh, you know, that was the key to boosting your profile. And then it was, yeah,
0: yeah all kind of. It all kind of. Not- goes from one to the other. But I've spoken to, to Flo and Joan before and they they really don't like Edinburgh because, like, sharing a bed with each other and, yes. you know, sheep, sort of having to sort of slum it almost for a couple of weeks. Would you agree or do you... Is there a draw to it for you?
1: Well, I mean, I've always loved it, but it is, yeah, I mean, it's brutal, especially when you are starting out and you are probably living uh yeah sort of two or three to a room I mean at least Flo and Joan are sisters yes you know I mean I've had to share rooms with people that I didn't even (laughs) I wasn't even related to so but yeah and you have to go out and hand out leaflets with your own face on them and say please come to see my show I'm really funny uh this is the brownie training
0: though I think you know as a brownie (laughs) you probably have to go and hand out leaflets for certain things or you would have to be sharing yeah
1: but not you know. with your
0: face on them though. no I well mean, that's, you know.
1: true. <laughs> that's true that's <laughs> true yeah. and you camp for like you know a night or two and then you go back home and you get to yeah. you know You're sit right. in front of a fire yeah, yeah
0: brownies is easy compared to this this yeah. is tough and and also saying i'm really funny come and see me that is painful isn't oh it? agony and of course it wasn't true in the
1: early days either <laughs> so, actually I wasn't that funny and uh, I, you know in hindsight I realized I was selling a a kind of a, a, a selling something under false pretenses but uh, it's you know it's the way you learn and it did feel like a rite of passage but it did it also cost quite a lot of money and that it, if You had felt like you were doing it because you were going to make a fortune, but it was basically just to to cover your losses. So you were sort of going, (laughs) I've got to sell 20 tickets so that I don't lose a £100 tonight. And it was... uh, You're almost grabbing
0: people off the street. Come on, please, please. You've got to come in. Yeah.
1: And I mean, you know, you see the best and worst of people in those situations, don't you? Because... You know, some people are incredibly dismissive and rude and unpleasant, but some people, a lot of people, are really kind and sweet. And there are people who came to see those early shows who have come to see every single show that I've ever done since. And Amazing. No wonder you said
0: I'm... you were going to go around to their house and do the show in their front room if your oh, tour gets postponed. Yes. Again. <laughs>
1: Well, there is part, like, I do just miss the contact. Because actually, when you have been doing this job as long as I have, you genuinely do have sort of audience members who you know and you're kind of. You know, you're just used to seeing each other once a year. Yeah, all <laughs> sort of oh, well, your hair's looking
0: nice, that kind of thing. Yes. yes. Yeah.
1: Well, like, so they catch up on my life by watching my show, in which I always talk about, you know, my latest disasters or triumphs or whatever. And then we have a little chat afterwards, and I find out, you know, what they've been up to. And it's
0: yeah, it's really strange not to have that. It is a real a real shame. And and you mentioned about these TV appearances. Was there a particular Uh, program that you went on like have I got news for you that that did make a big impact in in how your career progressed a particular um, episode because I I must imagine that before you get on those shows you're all waiting around to go on and you're thinking oh god I've got to be really funny on this I've got to you know have I got news for you I've got to deliver a killer line I don't want to be that person who sits there and doesn't say anything that week, because that that does happen sometimes doesn't it well I often was that person
1: (laughs) I'm sure you weren't There was a real pressure in the early days for a couple of reasons. I think because I had really internalised this idea of, oh, you're only getting to go on these shows because you're a woman. And people used to say that to me and I was like, well you know and at the time I'd be like oh oh god yeah they're probably right and of course now I look back and I think well yeah some of the opportunities I got it was because they you know they had started to realise it looked quite bad that they never had any women on their show so I think I was kind of quite lucky in that respect but also I had earned the right to be there and I sort of was good enough to be there but I never really felt that way and especially being the only woman on some of those panel shows it did feel like you're not just there sort of thinking, oh, well, i better be funny so that people will come and see my show so they'll think I'm funny. It was like, i better be funny so that people think women are funny. Because oh, pressure. I was awful. Because so every journalist, whenever you did an interview in those days, they always used to say, oh, um, well, of course, Christopher Hitchens said that women simply aren't funny. What do you say to that? And it's impossible to answer. And I can't believe, again, you know, you look back. And I think I tied myself up in knots for years kind of trying to be polite and nice and answer the question and go, well, you know, I mean, I really respect Christopher Hitchens in other ways, but um, actually I think you'll find... we And it's like, don't, don't answer that. It's just not worth engaging with it, but... (laughs) You know, you know, at the time I was uh, kind of... I, I thought, oh, yeah, you've just got to be nice and answer any question that anyone ever asked you. And um, but, beforehand, but it was tremendous fun doing those those panel shows. Is it? And, I mean, sometimes it would be really... You know, you'd have a really good laugh and there'd be really nice people on it and it would be um, really good fun. And radio, I mean, I really think we do brilliant radio in this country and uh it's sometimes undervalued but the radio ones like the news quiz and uh the now show and there's loads of really fun things that you can do on uh you know on the radio and stuff whereas yeah some of the tv shows were sort of a bit more aggressive and combative and didn't enjoy those ones so much but then some of them were lovely like QI is very nice and well it's you know it's
0: it's it's a joy to see you on them and, and uh, it's, I, I just imagine that it's, you get into the end of the show, you kind of think, oh, 20 minutes in, I've got to say something funny. Is that thing, get, thing in your head ticking or, or or not? you just got to go. Yeah,
1: I mean, sometimes I think, yeah, when I was younger, I used to feel the pressure a lot more, whereas now I think everything gets so much easier as you get older. Uh, well I mean not everything you know staying asleep past four in the morning without <laughs> needing away and you know there's there's, there's getting <laughs> upstairs going for a run all of those things are harder but uh, psychologically in terms of uh, self-image and things like I oh, it's so much easier because I just don't care really anymore it's I'm not trying to prove anything to anyone I kind of just enjoy myself and if I'm not enjoying myself then I don't say anything and I just think well that's fine because it's not coming naturally so what does it matter
0: and you I get the impression though you do like you've got an adrenaline fix fixation that you like because so live comedy adrenaline um quiz shows I mean that's that is hardcore and and on the telly as well and and also all these these panel shows so you obviously like the buzz I do love the adrenaline because it is
1: like a it's like extreme sports for the lazy basically. So So if you can't get up the stairs, at least you can (laughs) Exactly. You can still get that buzz of oh my God, I'm on a quiz I mean, quizzes is my absolute passion and that is my big hobby and I do a podcast about quizzing and I do like any sniff of a TV quiz I'm absolutely there because still to this day like winning celebrity mastermind is probably the proudest moment of my life which is tragic given that I am married and have two children you know I should really be <laughs> saying it was my wedding day or the birth of my children but no it was probably celebrity mastermind
0: but that must have been terrifying going into that big black chair you know you've, you grew, we've all grown up with it it's it's a massive deal so to perform on that is uh, and then to win it is is that i what rightly so I think you should be proud of
1: that (laughs) well I think doing anything that's sort of iconic still is a bit of a thrill isn't it you know so like some like even doing have I got news for you I only did it once um I was on with Anne Whitcomb who hated me so much and (laughs) um it was so awful did she actually say that or was that just a vibe Oh, I, an unmistakable vibe that she just thought I was the worst creature on the planet because I was, I think, well, you know, I think her her feelings towards other women are complicated to say the least. So, yeah, she was kind of very strange. But uh, anyway, I'm, I, I, I digress. You've uh, moved on from the, that now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fine. I'm sure we'll be the best of friends one day. <laughs> but um, being on that set was kind of like, oh, my God, I'm on... I'm on that set that I've seen on television and similarly with Mastermind. And then sometimes, like, The Chase is one of my absolute favourite programmes of all time and so getting to be on that was brilliant. So there's still a few that I'd like to tick off at some point like, if I can. which ones? Uh, Tipping Point. Obsessed with Tipping Point. I'd love to do that. Um, Meet Ben Shepard. Uh, I love it. Well, listen, Ben Shepherd is the nicest man in the world. I've done a couple of shows with him. And he's just an absolute delight. Well, have you not asked him? Have you done some shows with him? Surely you. Oh wouldn't. God, I've hinted very heavily. I've hinted incredibly heavily. Well, that and only connect, which when. Um, oh yes, of course. If ever I've seen Victoria Cora and Rachel, I've been like, uh, oh, I love your show. Really love it. Really would love to do that. And anyone I speak to who's at all connected with it, I'm always like, I'd love to do it. Um, so yeah, I, you know, those two, I think I'd really i'd really
0: like to do there's you know i have few ambitions left but those are two <laughs> but you see we've also because also, we've talked about the podcast and a little bit and um, and the quizzing and but being an actress and, and the writing as well we kind of skip through loads of, of all the writing that you've done as well i mean do you go around with a notebook now and sort of note things down for your shows and 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 what would you say is your if you had to say this is the thing i do or, or do you think i'm you diversify so you don't you are not a thing well, God, I mean, it, it,
1: at the moment, I don't feel like anything. I was talking to some friends about this, and we were like, well, "What do you say you do?" Because we don't, we're not really doing anything, and then, you know. And then you sort of go, "Well, broadcaster," or you know, I yeah, I feel like we need some sort of new term for just somebody who I'll sort of basically do anything. <laughs> <laughs> All-rounder sort of sounds like a positive way of saying it, but, uh, you know, um, we'll tap dance for food, basically. So, But that I've always thought, actually, I I like to keep a lot of options open, and that's always a good philosophy in life, I think, because... Because if you one never door closes, know, then you've mm, always got the other, the other there's thing. There's something else that you can rely on, yeah. But I think not having a plan, you know... I I do sometimes think I wish I had been a bit more ambitious or had a bit more direction and focus and thought, well, that's what I want to do. But then again, actually leaving yourself open to opportunities and being a little bit more flexible, it's, you know, in some ways, I think, gosh, I've had quite a good balance of terrible terrible years where I thought oh my god I'm never going to work again and then brilliant brilliant years where I've been like this is amazing and I'm you know this is all working out and it's going to be sunshine and flowers from now on and of course it never turns out to be as bad as you thought it would be or as good as you thought it would be it's normally sort of somewhere in the middle and if within that you can try and sort of keep a bit of work life balance going as well I think it, it it's hard to plan for all that stuff. So being a bit more open and flexible
0: maybe hasn't been a bad thing. Yeah, well, you can't plan for a pandemic, can you? That's not something, you know, I often think to myself, I can't believe I'm thinking we are in a pandemic. I never thought that would be something that I would be be living through. And this is something that our kids are going to be, our kids' kids are going to be learning about in history lessons as well. It's, yeah. it's it's It kind of blows your mind. But with your husband as well, um, in the creative industries too, do you find... we've got friends um, well my husband has a proper job (laughs) I don't um and that's quite good because there's the stability but on the other hand also with both of you being in creative jobs you both understand what you both do don't you well actually in lockdown time
1: it was brilliant because we could do stupid things together in fact we've started making a podcast together Just for the sheer bloody fun of it, really. It's another sort of quizzing thing. We just do a a little quiz three times a week. And we did make little videos together. And I think it actually really helped us not to kill each other. (laughs) (laughs) It was either create something together or argue. And uh, so we... I mean, not that we didn't argue when we were making things together. But, yeah, there's... I, you know, again, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, is there? In some ways, it's nice to do something completely different from your partner to sort of give give that sort of contrast but um but at the same time yeah it's been all right for us to sort of we can moan god we spend so much of our time just moaning <laughs> and we're both actually very happy with our lot generally but there's nothing quite like a good moan and if someone if the other person really understands what you're moaning at and can join in and amplify it then that's that's a joy but you
0: talked about all the struggles that you had in those early days, and you know not having enough money to even eat properly. So, if your children do turn around to you and say, "We've seen that video on the on the on YouTube, or we've seen you be, being a bit rude and funny," but we'd quite like to do that, would you be up for that? Would you I let them? Would- but they've got to do what they have got to do,
1: I suppose. Well, exactly. Exactly. I think well my mum and dad, for all that they didn't really approve of what I did, they never stood in my way and they worried desperately. But yeah, I think the kids I mean all kids want to be YouTubers now, don't they? I think that's the Yeah. That's
0: the thing. And, it and they're all gonna me. make millions from it as well. I've already been yes. told that they're gonna have ten million pound houses. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I know. I know. And you do look at the YouTubers' houses and you go, That is extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, given that I'm too old to be a YouTuber, I might wholeheartedly embrace <laughs> their YouTubing <laughs> and hopefully live in a massive house with a swimming pool in L.A., you know, why not? But, yeah. Now, I mean, I think the the, the thing I would worry about and I think the thing that did blight some of my younger life was the yeah, kind of the constant rejection and the it's very easy to be buffeted around by your career highs and lows when you are so reliant on other people giving you work. And, you know, I mean, I think that's why I've always tried to have projects of my own, so... You're in a bit more control. Yeah, you can be... Well, at least I can write something or I can do something and, you know, it, it gives you that illusion of control even if you don't have it. But... And also, yeah, body image and, you know, being under scrutiny... Uh, for the way that you look. But then I think that is sadly kind of happening more to young people in all walks of life now and being judged, you know, because to me... Like when I was out there doing my early shows and I would be on TV and I'd get people saying horrible things about how I looked or really graphically sexual approaches or, you know, and that was really kind of hard to cope with. And then also being reviewed and, you know, you'd get amazing reviews and be elated and then terrible reviews and be absolutely kind of wretched about them. And you'd read them. And you'd inevitably at some point sort of be unable to help yourself, like picking a scab. You'd go, I know (laughs) I've got this awful review, I've got to read it. Um, But that seems to happen. Like even friends of mine who are teachers now get reviewed. and Yes. You know, everybody is rated and reviewed and appraised and and judged on their appearance. And I think that all the things that were terrible about my job have now (laughs) kind of leaked out into wider society. So in a way, I'd be less worried about my kids being in the public eye in some way now than I would have been, I think, 20 years ago.
0: And you said as well, as you get older, you le- you care less. So I, I, the, 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 um, the sketch you did about pranking the van drivers, so um, if anyone hasn't seen it, the, 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 the van drivers that were rude about that young girl walking down the street and then you went over <laughs> to them and were, were quite uh, feisty back. But is that something that you would have done 20 years ago, do you think? No, I mean, I think, yeah,
1: that kind of self-confidence to talk to people, uh, you know, to stand up for yourself definitely comes with age. Although, in fact, that actual piece of material, I kind of think, I'm not sure I would even do that now because that sort of, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of, I mean, I look back on all the material that I do and I think, oh, actually, uh, sort of, I find it very difficult to look at stuff that I have done because I change so much. And sometimes I look at sort of things that I did when I was younger and I think, oh, no, that was really, like, either I did stuff that now seems a bit cruel or inadvertently kind of makes a different point to the point that I was trying to make or I just, yeah. As I get older, I care less about sort of upsetting people in some ways I think but then I also I do feel a bit more
0: aware that you sort of mouth off about stuff Mm. you see because it's all on the internet for you to look at it's like this big filing cabinet isn't it of everything you've ever done whereas if you had a, a job where you were I don't know doing presentations no one would ever see that or see anything that you've done before but it is all out there isn't it I know, I mean,
1: I would never choose to look at anything I've done because I hate watching myself because I have that real kind of... I mean, I think everyone does, don't they? I, I don't think anyone... I mean, some performers I know are better. It's actually good, I think, as a performer, to be able to look back at what you've done and learn and assess,
0: you know, where you went wrong and where you went right. But um, I it's find tough, It's tough it's tougher because For me, I've worked quite a lot in radio and so you have to listen to your links a lot and you sit with your boss and you dissect a 30-second link and you dissect it really second by second, in commercial radio anyway. And it makes you almost... If if you've got a great boss, it's fine and it can be empowering. But if it's terrible, you can, the next day, open the microphone and actually forget what your name is and uh, (laughs) where you are because you just... I can't say anything, I'm going to muck it up. So it it can be good looking back on your work, but sometimes it can... It can't help. It's very difficult. It's a difficult one. And I think with comedy as well, you
1: are always kind of reflecting what people find funny and at the time and yeah, and things sort of do change, which is not to excuse kind of, you know, obviously cruel or offensive. You know, sometimes you say something and you think, oh, actually, I know that wasn't that wasn't quite the right thing to say or maybe I was just doing that for shock or I think when I was younger I would sort of say stuff that I was like that I didn't even really believe like there was a lot of internalised sexism and um and sort of self-hatred so I'd be incredibly self-deprecating I do look back and I go God I really hated myself and <laughs> I said all these terrible things about myself and um, and then sort of by extension about women really that I sort of am not proud of but yeah um,
0: but, at the time, I don't though, know. It's all, it was all what it was at the time, isn't it? And, um, and you know,
1: there were things that I felt I needed to say to relax an audience in order to get them to go with me for other things. But it's all, yeah, it's kind of quite interesting to look back on stuff that you've done. And again, I think that it's more difficult for younger people now because everything they have ever done is on the internet. So for me, it's like actually my really terrible early TV show gigs, I have some of them on VHS. And in fact, my agent said, "Oh, you should uh, you should upload those and you know put them on." I'm like, "There is no way unless anyone else has got a VHS of that terrible Channel Five thing I did back in 1999 or whatever." Then yeah, there's there ain't no way. that I'm <laughs> No one's put that seeing up. that. <laughs> no way. Whereas yeah, if I was 21, then I couldn't. I'd have no control over that it would be out there for everyone to see and I think that is difficult I think that as yeah some of the very uh sort of self-righteous young people I think there is that little bit of you as an older person when and I was like this and I'm not you know I'm not saying I wasn't but you know when you're young and you think god I'll never I'll I'll never look back and be ashamed of any of the things that I'm saying now (laughs) Uh, yeah Fast give yourself 20 years, years love yeah <laughs> you'll you'll soon change your tune there
0: <laughs> and so we've talked about um big big moments in terms of mobile phone ads and um and, and comedians who really inspired you and, and helped you like like carolina hearn and 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 the job in granada which the hat that <laughs> got you into the entertainment were there, were there any other big pivotal moments that you thought, yeah, that, that was a real turning point for me? Um well I suppose moving to London, because
1: that was what you had to do in those days. You had to be in London and um Yeah, I I mean, I think uh writing a play, doing I did a play in Edinburgh Well in fact I tell you no, here's here's my big moments, right? So there was starting off doing comedy. Uh, there was moving to London. There was being in in 2004. I was in a play called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest yes. with a load of other comedians, and that was I say a big turning point. I think it did sort of really it probably really helped my career a bit. But what it was more was just the best laugh ever of having six months of just mucking around with other comedians and Christian Slater, the Hollywood actor. Well, and you know,
0: just... it's not a bad life, is it, doing that? It
1: was the most, that was like the most glamorous kind of showbiz part of my life. And in many ways, I mean, I was actually very miserable personally. You know, my love life was chaotic and I was living on my own in a flat in Elephant and Castle being actually quite miserable a lot of the time. So that was sort of big highs and lows. And then going to Las Vegas couple of years after that doing comedy festivals yeah. in las vegas and uh, singapore and
0: yeah we've missed all, the, all around the
1: world and, and that
0: was just off the back of everything that you'd done before i imagine
1: yeah so that was the kind of early 2000s was i'd sort of done a lot of uh a lot of live shows and a bit of television and then kind of started to get to travel the world and that was great and i you know, had some brilliant shows and some absolutely terrible shows and went to places where they really got me. Like, you know, Holland was lovely. Um, South Africa, they did not get me at all. And it was kind of really (laughs) painful. Um, And then went to... And then I suppose then we enter the kind of... the child-bearing years. And uh, that sort of changes everything, obviously. Um, But then... That made me sort of pivot, as they say these days, to other things. So I wrote a play in 2014 and that's kind of with a wonderful woman called Marilyn Imory who directed that, who sadly died this year, which is yeah. a huge loss to to the world in general and the world of the arts in particular. Um, but And then she got me into kind of doing more radio stuff. So then I've been doing some... Radio Four specials, which I've got another one of those that we're going to make whenever it is safe to do so,
0: and uh, and then
1: yeah, and that sort of encouraged me to sort of think more about writing again and to get into. And, it. and you
0: mentioned, you know, having children, because a lot of people say, oh, you know, career's over, it's everything changes. But I've sort of spoken to a lot of friends who it's actually it makes you just reassess things and you have to do things differently. But actually, things. Come out of that, and you, you say you do more writing, and it just leads to it opens other doors, which maybe that wouldn't have happened if, if you hadn't had kids.
1: Yeah, I mean, you do. I don't know, you do have those thoughts, don't you, of like what would life have been like? And it's sort of unimaginable, really. And I don't, I mean, I think I was actually personally quite unhappy at a lot of the high points of my career and the Christian and Slater and years, You know, I have had sort of the normally. It's been the better my career is going, the less happy I am personally. <laughs> so, sort of trying to find that balance of actually, you can have a happy personal life and a happy work life. You know, I think I'm, def- I'm definitely the the life side of the work life balance has got better and better, and it's been really actually nice um, being able to spend time with the kids and both of us having, you know, irregular insecure crazy jobs um, the upside of that has been that I mean Justin has spent way more time with his kids than most of the guys I know who have proper jobs and you know and I've seen you know had really lovely time with them uh, and you know childcare disasters and nightmares and I you know the whole childcare thing that I had not appreciated what an absolute disaster it is unless you have, you know, the the God a, bless grandparents, a living nanny. Oh yeah, you either have to have lots of money or family close by, and we uh, sadly <laughs> didn't really have either. But uh, but. Again, through that, we have spent a lot of time with our children and we have got to know a lot of babysitters uh, who we would otherwise... It's brought a lot of lovely people into our lives that we would not otherwise have known. So it's been been good. But, yeah, and then, you know, and then you think, well, what is the next phase? And that's something as middle-aged women in entertainment, you know, it's absolutely extraordinary how, like, television work disappears... Uh, radio and writing and stuff is still a possibility But I do genuinely worry I think, God, you know, it's, it's much, much, much harder
0: But don't you think that's changing that, a little bit? <laughs> oh,
1: yeah, no, it's definitely getting better than it was Definitely But I think it's still, you know, we've still got a way to go on that That you don't really see an awful lot oh, And it's not just women, actually Sort of middle-aged people are kind of rarer in comedy and you know but yeah again you, you just have to sort of adapt to
0: it and if you were sort of to churn out some advice to to anyone who wants to start out doing what you did I mean <laughs> I think yeah it, it's not all beat be, horrible beans and um and poverty but it's <laughs> it is tough at the beginning but what would be your advice
1: well it is tough at the beginning and I'm not necessarily convinced that even before the pandemic um, whether live comedy is the way to go anymore to get sort of discovered. I kind of think that you're probably better off having a really good YouTube channel or being a TikTok star and then you can do the live stuff kind of off the back of that because I think there's been a bit of a a kind of a bottleneck really in that it's there's so many people wanting to do comedy and it's been very sort of hard to kind of get discovered so yeah I would say probably start a YouTube channel now rather than go out and do you do need to do the live gigs and you'll never be good at doing live gigs unless you do them but you might want to get a little bit of something behind you first well like a 10 million pound
0: house with a nice pool. yes
1: but then of course you won't want to do the grimy little stand
0: up no, that no the, 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 the appeal kind of just lessons, doesn't it, where you think, why would I bother when I've got my nice pool in L.A.? And
1: actually, I suppose the truth of it is that when I was starting out, what I really wanted was the grubby live. I mean, you know, it's there. We're coming back round in a perfect circle to there is no substitute for live entertainment. And if you want to be a stand up, if you really want to be a stand up, I think there are some people who like want to be a stand up in order to become something else or and if you if you if you want to use stand-up as a tool to get your writing scene or to get your um acting career off the ground or whatever then I think there are better ways to do it than starting in the comedy clubs but if you do just want to be a stand-up comedian and and I think you know when I started out that was all I wanted was I just wanted to learn my craft and you do still have to do that in the clubs.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and you say they, there's a, there was a theme of drifting, but I think there was there was a lot of determinedness and, you know, what did you say, bloody mindedness as well? Bloody you know?
1: mindedness, yes. And that persists to this day. I do sort of <laughs> think I am quite tenacious and uh, and cheeky. And I do sort of, if I think I've had a good idea, then I will flog it into the ground. Like I've got this tv idea that nobody wants <laughs> that has been rejected roundly and i absolutely refuse to give up on it Good. and i will be proved right one day i do you know and i have had this with a few things where um like this the play that i wrote i had pitched that in various ways And then when actually, you know, I'm just going to bloody well write a play about this. And then I did. And then I got a radio series off the back of that. And so persistence does always pay off. And actually, the big thing that I've learned through years of being in showbiz is um, actually delivering is all that counts. And the number of people who say, oh, I can't, you know, I want to be a writer or I want to be this or I want to be that but then don't actually do the thing. And this is me. I'm not I'm not saying that I don't do this because I for years have been saying, oh, yes, you know, I'd love to write a book and having meetings with literary agents and having meetings with publishers. And, you know, I've been very lucky that I've had a bit of profile that has got me in the door. But what I haven't done is actually written a bloody book. And I mean, that's really <laughs> all you need to do. And <laughs> it's surprising how many people sort of say, oh, I really want to write something, but don't actually do it, and I yeah. have been that person, and I'm determined <laughs> not to be
0: anymore. You've just got to write it. So I was going to ask you what next. So there's going to be the big TV show that will happen. You can't say what it is, obviously, because somebody will nick the idea. Yeah, and if
1: they nick it now, after I have spent about 10 years, that would be the ultimate indignity, just to see someone else get that away first thing. So, yeah, so that will be coming to your screens. And if it kills me, I will get that done. Um, And also, if it kills me, I will write a book. I always, every year for the last few years, I've had a aim to do something by christmas and so it was start the podcast that i do with jenny ryan was one year write the play was another year um and so this year it is get this book written by christmas by
0: christmas that's not going to give you long
1: no well, i've already done some i'm not it's i'm not starting today okay <laughs>
0: Okay. Oh, well, that's amazing. Oh, well, we'll look forward to reading that as well. Oh Now, I thought you'd, like, got a blank piece of paper and you got, like, 12 weeks, not even 12 weeks, like, nine weeks to write things. Oh,
1: well, don't, no, 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 no. Well, nine weeks is still not enough. I'm not saying that nine weeks is enough, but, yeah, it's... uh but then since none of us are going to be able to sort of go anywhere or do anything at christmas i can yes. when i say by christmas maybe i should say by new year and then so I can christmas dinner it.
0: is off you're going to be upstairs not eating turkey but writing
1: <laughs> yes they can bring the turkey upstairs <laughs>
0: Well, Lucy, thank you so much for uh, for talking to me.
1: It's. I, I mean oh, it's been such a pleasure. I do. I, I mean, I've wang on about myself for hours. Wanging now, on like... is what
0: we like. It's great, and <laughs> um, you know, it's really inspiring to hear that. You know, you, you you've had you know quite a few barriers up against you, but you've still flipping gone on with it, and uh, I think that's really inspiring. Well, I think all you can do is carry on, isn't
1: it? And I mean. It really upsets me, actually, when I think about all the really brilliant people I started out with doing stand-up who got discouraged and fell by the wayside. And some of them are amazing. And some of them, I think, it was because, like, they were women and it was so incredibly sexist and they got kind of driven out or they were just you know nice guys in a time when laddishness was what was needed or you know there were, there are sort of things where you think oh that is such a shame that people have have given up or you know people that we've lost through illness and you know the when I think again you know you get to middle years and you think god yeah just keeping going is really a privilege to be able to just keep going you know that it's it I shouldn't take it for granted.
0: Absolutely. Oh well, listen. We'll let you get on and write your book. Yes, God. Well,
1: thank you for giving me an excuse not to do that for <laughs> for an hour. <laughs> I do. I'll just go and make a cup of tea, and uh, that will take me half an hour. Then i better to check my emails. So anyway, basically, Watch cool me done for the day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks, Ellie. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, looking forward to reading that book and thank you to Lucy for sharing her wit and advice. You can follow her on Twitter at Lucy Porter Comic and we're on at Where Go Right. If you love comedy and uh, want to hear other comedians, there's loads on our podcast. We've got Paul Mayhew Archer, Adam Buxton, Maureen Littman, Flo and Joan, Al Murray and Maddie Holt. They're all there lined up for you. Thanks to Megan for being producer extraordinaire and Laura Shipsey for the music. See you next week. This episode of Where Did It All Go Right is sponsored by Pearson. Pearson is the world's learning company, supporting talent and helping everyone to make progress in their lives through learning. Working with teachers and education experts, Pearson provides a wide range of qualification routes so you can pick the course which suits you best to develop your skills and stand out in the crowd. Visit them online at go.pearson.com forward slash Where did it all go right?